Hello and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast. I'm Jeff Young. These days, colleges are starting to experiment with artificial intelligence. And often the goal is to spot when students need extra help in class or in balancing their schoolwork and other parts of their life. It's a growing area called predictive analytics, but it assumes that it's the student that needs to adjust. Some experts in AI say the rush of algorithms may leave a bigger legacy, helping colleges rethink how they operate for all students. In other words, what if all this data analysis ends up showing colleges that they just aren't serving students well, and that it's the system that needs to change? But that will only happen if college leaders and professors learn to listen to the data. Those were key points that emerged during a recent online panel discussion at Surge hosted on the promises and perils of AI in education. It was the first episode of our new series called Ed Surge Live, a video town hall that invites anyone to chime in and ask questions. For the podcast today, we're bringing you highlights from that discussion, so this episode's a bit longer than usual. We invited three guests, Ken Estill, an assistant professor of education at Stanford, Mark Millerin, a co-founder and chief learning officer at Civitas Learning, and Kyle Bowen, Education Tech Services Director at Penn State University. And that meant we had a variety of perspectives, a researcher, an edtech leader, and a college administrator. We'll have that conversation right after this. This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the EdSurge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. Hello, and welcome to uh, EdSurge Live, a talk show about edtech and the future of higher education. This is our debut episode. Uh, thank you all for joining us. I'm Jeff Young, an editor at EdSurge. Today, we're talking artificial intelligence and the increasing presence of algorithms in higher education. Um, it's an important time, I think, to have a dialogue on this topic because there's a lot of unanswered questions, um, everything from... You know, there are uh, adaptive learning systems for for the classroom. There are advising systems that are trying to use predictive analytics in various ways. But there are also a lot of um, questions, um, ethical questions about, and practical questions and philosophical questions about how far um, higher education should go in bringing AI and and who decides uh, what these systems should look like. Um, To get the conversation started, we're going to start with two guests with um, different perspectives. Joining us remotely, um, from Stanford University is Candace Till, who is an assistant professor of education at Stanford's Graduate School of Education. And with me here in studio is Mark Millerin, uh, co-founder and chief learning officer of Civitas Learning. Um, I say studio, we are here at Educause annual conference, um, and there are a lot of panels here I've noticed um, about AI, but honestly, thank you both for joining us, uh, Mark and Candace. Glad to be in the mix. So um, I have a couple questions to get things started. I do kind of think of this as like a uh, you know a good NPR talk show where people can call in and ask smart questions, and that's what we hope people out there on video will do. Um, and I know you will. So Mark, um, our, uh, your company d- d- develops AI-powered systems for higher education at Civitas, and I wanted to start by getting your kind of big picture vision of the landscape. Uh, what how would you paint like a as you see it kind of ideal scenario? of how this might play out at colleges and uh, how a student might be helped um, in various ways by AI on campus, kind of in an ideal world of the future, of the near future, maybe? I think it's a great question. It's a broad question. So I think the um, the place higher education writ large is in right now is a, a definitely beginning, beginning stages of any kind of use of AI. 
I would argue that the place we're probably in is kind of moving from accountability analytics to action analytics, where 95% of the data work being done in higher education is, is really focused on accountability analytics, getting data to creditors, to legislators, to trustees, to actually tell a story about how the institution has been doing in the past and talk about students who haven't been there or aren't there, any, aren't there anymore. Right, so our chief um, our chief data scientist comes from the world of healthcare, and he basically says that higher ed seems to be obsessed with autopsy analytics. Right, it's, it's data about people who are not with us anymore, trying to tell stories to help the current students. I think the shift is we're finally we're finally moving from a time of that radical focus on accountability analytics now into more action analytics, where we're, we're actually getting the data and is closer to real time to try to help students. And, and we're starting to weave in predictive analytics to show trajectories and using those data to try to help current students who are trying to choose better paths, um, trying to make better choices. They're trying to um, interact with resources in the right way. And the institution's trying to guide the kind of support they can, they can um, provide for the student. In particular, they're trying to personalize the pathway the student's gonna go on and help shape those big decisions, but also to give them precision support, nudging, encouragement, all, all at the right kind of time. The, this is a whole new skill set for higher education because they have not been using the data for this kind of term. And so I think the beginning phases of this has really been um, a lot of higher education institutions doing the very kind of basic form of what I would almost call algorithmic triggering, where they're saying, based on this demographic category and based on this one assumption, we're going to make sure the student does X, Y, or Z. And, and that, in some ways, is painful because sometimes they make assumptions, right? They assume that a demographic category is a proxy for risk, which is, in some ways, really problematic, and we can unpack that. Um, but I think now we're starting to see more and more of them become more precise and actually understand that student behavior is more predictive, and there are things that students can do to, to, to actually engage with the data and actually kind of... Um, um, become captains of their own ship, or at least participate in their own rescue. Um, and I, I think people have realized kind of three big things. One, it's the student's data. It's their data. These are actually, every piece of data is actually um, a footprint that kind of, if you put it together, tells a story of the journeys these students are on. And their data should be used to help them. Right. And right now, their data is, is mostly being used to help the institution justify its existence or tell its own story. Um, and we strongly feel that part of this is getting that data in a place where the institution can use that data to actually help that student. Second thing is it actually turns some pressure on the institution because it gives them kind of – it suddenly becomes a moral imperative of knowing. If you know based on the data that these students are on these trajectories that are great, you want to reinforce them, but other students are on a trajectory where they're probably going to see challenge, you absolutely want to try to intervene in some way and actually help them or inspire them or kind of move them in a different direction. But finally, I think um, we're seeing a broad embrace in this work, and I think the New America Foundation's privacy document was one of the best talking about this, a real embrace of this notion of do no harm is we absolutely have to have a do-no-harm philosophy with us where we're using these data to improve the outcomes for students. And this isn't going to be uh, used in a way that's really about uh, just benefiting the institution. It's got to be about trying to help the student. There's a, a lot in that answer, and we'll get back to some of those points. Um, Candice, I wanted to ask you, you're an early pioneer of using AI and adaptive learning tools with the online learning initiative that you led at Carnegie Mellon University. Um, I, but you've also recently raised concerns that when companies offer AI-driven tools, that the software can be a kind of black box um, that's out of the control of maybe the teachers or educators um, or those in higher ed um, institutions. I wonder if you could start by saying a little bit more about, about that um, um, perspective that you've come to. Um, so first, hi, Mark. Good to see you hey, again. Candace. 
Um, and I agree with much of what Mark also said. I am a big believer in using the data that we're extracting from student work to benefit and support the students in their learning. So we're highly aligned on that. Um, and, and I work at a slightly different level than the work that Civitas works on. As Jeff mentioned, the Open Learning Initiative, which I started at Carnegie Mellon and now have also at Stanford, is about using, uh, creating personalized and adaptive learning experiences for students um, when they're learning a particular subject area. So the way it works is as a student interacts with um, activities that are mediated by the online environment, we're taking those interactions and running them through a predictive model to be able to make a prediction, in this case, maybe about the learner's knowledge state or where they are on a trajectory for learning the things that they're trying to learn. And this is all very exciting, and it seems very straightforward. And, and as Mark mentioned, this kind of approach is revolutionizing every other industry. Um, so, but, but what we have to recognize is what we're doing is, is having these systems support our pedagogical decision-making. Because taking a piece of student interaction as evidence, running it through a model, to make a prediction about the current state of that learner and then giving that information either back to the system itself so the system can make some kind of autonomous decision about how to support that student next. You know, I'll give you this problem next, I'll give you this to read next, or even taking that prediction and giving it to the learner so they can make some decision about what they do next or give it to a faculty member who's teaching the learner so they can get insight into where the student learning is so they can make a decision about what to do next. All of that is pedagogical decision-making. And the data to collect, the factors to include when you're making the model, how to weight the factors, what modeling approaches or algorithms to use, what information to represent once you have the prediction and how to represent it to the various stakeholder groups, I would say are all very active areas of research and part of the emerging science of learning. So I would argue that in an academic context, all of those parts, and particularly the models and algorithms, can't be locked up in proprietary systems. They must be transparent, they must be peer reviewable, they must be challengeable, so that we can, as we're entering as higher education into this space, uh, the, the decisions about pedagogical decision-making that are being made are being made um, by folks who, are, who know how to make those kinds of decisions. To just say, trust us, our algorithms work, I would argue, as I said before, that that's alchemy, that's not science. <laughs> so, so Mark, what are, as, as a company in this space, how do, you, how do you respond to something like that, or how does your company handle these these questions yeah so i think um getting uh, under the hood right um, yeah i, I think i think we're in violent agreement about uh, about both of this i think you know a couple things on this one is um we absolutely think that it is incumbent upon companies like civitas um, and organizations who are to do this kind of work to make sure that we are making transparent the what the data science is saying so one of the things that we've done in particular so for example in our in our tool Alum. If you're looking at any given segment of students and you want to look at their trajectories, one of the first things we do is, um, even though we have done um, enormous amounts of modeling and, and 
all kinds of work around data availability segmentation and kind of broad-based kind of diverse modeling based on different student segments. One of the first things we want to do is whatever set of students you're looking at, we actually want to show you the most powerful predictors. So we literally will list the most powerful predictors and their relative score and power in the model so that people are clear this is why the trajectory is showing the, the trajectory it is so people can understand which variables are impacting it that way. And what we have clearly seen is getting the data to people who are managing that, the advisors, the student success people, and letting them iterate on what the challenge actually is and not assuming we know what the challenge is or what, even what the response is. But having them iterate with the data is really important. And so part of that is transparency so they can do it. And then publishing in peer-reviewed journals and the rest so people can see the math. But truthfully, modeling these days is a commodity. That's, that's, not the, that's not the rocket science. What you really want them to understand is which factors you're using and which factors tend to be the most predictive and how they're loading into the model. Um, you know, an algorithm, it's all about correctness and, and the efficiency of that model. We're trying to make sure that you can maximize those, but really trying to get educators to think this way is a totally different way of, 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 of thinking for them. Um, I, I do think we now have emerging communities of practice where people are beginning to share what works and what doesn't work in this. And, and I think the problem is, to Candace's point, the problem will be the black box. If you do have a black box, the challenge is, you have some pretty brutal assumptions in there. And assumptions, I, I mean, in our work in pathway analytics, people will literally use race as a proxy for risk. That's offensive. It's not a proxy for risk for a lot of students. And, or they will use, I mean, all, and, or academic indicators as the only thing that indicates challenge. And what we've found is clearly that psychosocial life and logistics, the, you know, the Sarah Goldrick Rab work around you know, the, this, the sustenance living challenges of some of our students are far more pervasive and problematic than the academic challenges. And, and that's where you get into some much, be much better conversations when people are actually using the data as opposed to the assumptions. That's the challenge of the algorithm is the assumptions grounded. And Candace, you and, when you and I were talking um, just the other day, you were mentioning that, if I understood you correctly, that even this, you know, even agreeing with, with Mark, there's, you mentioned at some point, you know, people reading this data might take some action that wasn't intended by the, the people making the, the, the software. How, is, there, <clears throat> is there some concern that students and professors could misuse the data, even if it's designed, even if these other uh, issues you mentioned, like the, you know, the black box issue is, is kind of satisfied? Um, and, and what does that look like? Is, uh, yeah, so I think that I think that there are multiple challenges. Yeah. One of them is I think people will make the assumption a computer is telling me this, so it's neutral or it's objective or it's true, and without recognizing that the uh, the computer, the algorithm was written by that system was written by a human being who had certain values, who made certain choices about what factors to include in their model, um, how to weight those factors, what to use in their in the prediction of the score that they're giving you. That that was a human decision. Um, it's, or even if you're talking about pure sort of deep learning algorithms where we're not uh, pre-stating what all of those factors are, we're just giving lots and lots and lots and lots of data to the algorithm and say, learn yourself what's important in this pattern. So you could say, okay, that's not then biased by humans, but then it's biased by the data that we give it. So if we don't have, if we don't have extremely representative data that's both representative of large numbers of students in different contexts, but also can be localized to the specific context, then, then the algorithms are going to produce biased results. Yeah. 
And uh, kind of the example I would, and, and I agree with you completely, Mark, that part of it is making sure that people who are using the systems really understand what the system is telling them and how to use that. But I can, but I'm thinking about institutions, a lot of institutions that I work with that are under a lot of pressure. They're under a lot of pressure for accountability, as you're saying. And a big, a big measure of accountability right now is graduation rates. So a lot of institutions are putting as a measure that we're going to commit to increase our successful student graduation rate from whatever it is now to much higher than that, four to six year graduation rate. So then you tell all these advisors, and the other thing that's happening is people are being reduced and these systems are being brought in to support the people to make their decision making. So I'm imagining a scenario, which I don't think is too far fetched, which is, um, so I, let's say I'm a first generation, um, I can speak about my cousin, a first generation Latino woman coming into a big open access institution. And I've decided that I want to be a doctor. So I enroll in a pre-med I enroll in chemistry and biology and all these things in my first year because I want to be pre-med and those are the requirements. I didn't go, I didn't have the privilege of going to some um, high school that, that gave me lots of practice thinking about science and math and so on the way that this institution is expecting me to. So I, so, but I come in, I'm first generation, I'm also trying to deal with uh, that I don't have a lot of knowledge about how college even works. And I'm probably feeling a little bit like, do I really belong here? I'm excited that I got in. Um, but I'm kind of questioning my, my fit here. So I take my first year and I take the biology sequence. I take the chemistry sequence and then say for my elective, I take a Latina studies class because I'm interested in that. And I get C's and D's in my biology and chemistry courses. And I ace my Latina studies class coming in to meet with her advisor who looks at the predictive analytics and says the chances that this student staying in a chemistry major is going to graduate in four to six years is maybe two percent whatever the algorithm was used it's just saying and i can look at the back end data it shows me the reason we're making that prediction is you did really poorly in chemistry and biology and students who do that and you came from a high school that didn't prepare you well you know you're working outside that you're working outside of class to try and support yourself you know, it just isn't looking like a picture of success for you to stay in this major. But you've done really well in your Latina studies class. And so we would predict that if you switched majors to Latina studies, you would definitely graduate in four years and you'll have a much better time here at our college. So I, in all hope to try and get you student success, I'm going to recommend you switch majors. Now, I think about if it was one of my kids sitting in that chair, that student chair, their response would be, that's your belief. I know I'm going to be a doctor. So you figure out how this institution is going to help me be a doctor. And they, they wouldn't change majors. My concern is for a student who, who's already in a position where they're thinking these authorities are here to take care of me. They have my best interest at heart. I, I can see they're showing me the data. It doesn't look like I'm going to be success. I was kind of nervous about it anyway. It was really hard. I guess they're right. I'll switch majors. And my concern is not just the loss for that individual learner, I mean, that's a loss, but also the loss for us as a larger society yep. about what an amazing doctor that young woman may have been. But because of looking at patterns that are all built on historical data, say, hmm, to meet this outcome, it's better if you switch majors. Yeah. That's my big concern about how these kind of pathway data are going to be.
Yeah, I could not agree more about that issue. And I think the um, the challenge for the educators who want to use this data is, one, is I think if it's used incorrectly, it ends up being for the benefit of the institution, not for the benefit of the student. And that's really problematic because the institution it will do things like try to get students out of STEM pathways into, into different kinds of pathways they think it will be more successful on. The question is, can we take the, the same data and use them in a radically different way or a much more effective way, which is to say, use our design thinking and say to that student, okay, a student like you at this stage, if you really want to be successful in this pathway, here's what we've learned about students like you who have been successful. If you can pass this course at this level and you can take advantage of these resources, you can double your likelihood of graduating um, within the next four to six years. And you can start almost teaching them how to level up, where you say, if you, you know, and give them milestones they can reach. That suddenly gives you another way to engage them, but and that might not be the best way. There might be other ways to engage them, but the idea is iterating in a way to help them achieve whatever that goal is. But I could not be more in agreement with you about the idea that the facile answer to a lot of the a lot of people's use of data is to use data to optimize the the kind of general outcomes they're going for, as opposed to look at this in a more complex way. And I have the exact same fear you have. And I think one of the reasons why we have to have this community of practice and have people really challenge each other on this, and again, the do no harm strategy is it has to be at the core of this because the harm is you are making brutal assumptions about that student's likelihood to be successful, and you're also basing it on correlation causation data, which is just deadly. Right? So part of this is can we get better than that faster? The good news is we're in the very early stages of this, and if we can develop kind of a norm and an ethic around this, we can make sure good stuff happens more likely than not on the road ahead. But I do think it's going to be, it is going to be a community of practice that's going to have to hold itself accountable, much like in healthcare. I want to jump in and, and introduce Kyle Bowen, who joined us here um, a, a minute ago, but we haven't gotten to introduce him yet. He's, this is another perspective, and I think is an important one in this discussion. Um, he's the Educational Technology Services Director at Penn State. University. Um, thanks for being here. Um, I, I wonder, um, I know you've thought about a lot about AI-driven software and tools, um, and I wonder, you know, this is obviously, a, these are bigger, different conversations than you might have had back when it was a tool for, you know, doing a clicker audience response system or something. Yeah. This is a very different set of questions. So from your seat, how does it change things when you're looking at tools that might involve AI, mm-hmm. um, if you're building them or buying them or whatever you're or, or partnering with or whatever you want to call it? What what kind of how is the choice different for you and how do you see it? Sure. So I think there's a couple of things to look at in here and. and Part of it is to, you know, one is it's important for institutions to begin to develop these kinds of capabilities, right? So this type of, uh, and, and, and a lot of that starts with creating a uh, kind of uh, an ecosystem for data on your at your university. So being able to access the, this data, understand where it's coming from and what, what the actual data elements mean. And because with that, then you can more effectively work with partners in the industry, with, with your own internal researchers, with um, uh, software developers inside the institution to begin to explore uh, some of the applications um, using this tech, kind of technology. But the interesting part is is what we're seeing is, is really kind of a, a separation of ideas in here, which is one looking at um, kind of the use of of, of data to help drive pathways, which is what we've been kind of talking about a lot um, as I've watched uh, this afternoon. Um, but then there's another aspect to this, which is looking at the ways that these tools can help kind of take on other challenges that, that universities often face. So, so this is one area where we're spending a lot of time and effort um, researching how can um, AI and machine learning be used to 
uh, help drive um, the design development of open educational material? How can these kinds of technologies be used to help our students have deeper conversations online? Um, how can we use these kinds of technologies um, to, to take on problems that, that, that really seemed you know, too complex? And, and so this is, this is a great area. And so, so part of it is having that data ecosystem, having a good foundation to work from. Um, and at Penn State, this is an area where you know, we're bringing together faculty from across the university. So these aren't just you know, computer science faculty, but, but, but really they come from engineering, from, um, uh, from health, from uh, technology, from um, in, in education, coming together thinking cr uh, critically about how do we apply this to solve other big problems that face education. And I think that, so when we talk about you know, the uses of AI and uh, machine learning in this space, I, that's the green field, right? That's the area where I think we can, can go out and begin to experiment. But at the same time, that's on a much longer trajectory, right? So we are just beginning to understand the implications of that um, and the, the, uh, the, some of the complex you know, legal issues that surround something like that. So we've worked with you know, projects that have algorithms that are expressive so they can express new content. So when a machine expresses new content, then who's the author? So it, it raises these questions that we've never faced before. Um, and so in many ways, it's, it's, it's a discussion that almost seems science fiction at times. And so that's part of the exciting part of this, which is kind of beginning to explore not only the ways that we can use data to help our students be more successful from a pathway standpoint, but also the ways that we can use that data uh, or, or use, use uh, different types of data to help our students um, uh, be more successful when it comes to the moment of learning. So I want to open this up to, to the folks here in the audience. Um, and for any of the three of our guests here, uh, here's one. Um, what use cases do you think AI will impact first or most? Uh, do you think the non-academic use cases um, or with academic use cases like Newton? Um, which will be first and, and, and why? Candace, I think I saw you nodding. Do you have a... Uh, an answer to this one? Um, so I think that uh, I don't know which one's going to have an impact first. I think they're going to happen simultaneously. The one, of course, that I pay mo that I pay most attention to, and like our conversation here, is in the academic arena. How are these technologies going to be used to actually support the teaching and learning process? And I would actually think that Jill Watson example is also an example of that. Jill Watson is. Uh, for people who know in the uh, Georgia Tech, they're using Jill Watson as a T, an AITA. So that is still serving in a pedagogical agent kind of way. And and so with uh, with Newton, that is this no, notion of personalized and adaptive um, instruction for. And so what Newton does, and what any personalized and adaptive technology does, is you design uh, tasks for students to do in the interface. As the students, inter and it's what OLI does too, as students interact with those tasks, every interaction is a piece of evidence right. that then gets put through a model. And I would disagree with you, Mark, that the models don't matter. We've seen very different predictions come out of different ways. And maybe it's, maybe you were saying at the pathway model, it doesn't matter. In the predicting knowledge state, um, it matters what models you're using to make the predictions and how you're weighting the models and what factors you're including and all of those things. So, um, so the, what happens is all of those interactions are pieces of evidence yes. that then get put through some kind of modeling algorithm to produce a prediction that then is either given back to the system to make a decision, which is what I think Newton claims to do, that it's that the system itself will autonomously decide what activity to give a student next, 
um, or to give it to an instructor or to a student so they can make a decision. My challenge there is that given that we know from learning research that um, to differentiate instruction, uh, the way you would differentiate instruction is very complex. The factors that you need to consider are very complex. Then I would argue that the algorithms or the state of our science isn't that yet there to be able to make a really good prediction that you could just autonomously let a system make that decision. Um, and I still think figuring out the gold, the gold here is going to be figuring out which of those decisions we give to humans to make, which we can let a system autonomously make. That sort of human in the loop AI is, I think, where we should be focusing our next research area. Yeah, I mean, truthfully, that's why I love Candice's work because Candice uh, actually that that interaction between um, what the machine can do well and what the person can do well is is a ripe area for learning. And and I probably inartfully said the models don't matter. What I meant is the models are commoditized and that. The modeling is not magic that's out there, and you just need to examine which modeling technique you're using for which purpose, and you can actually look at the outcomes to see how it works. Were you uh, saying it's not a trade <clears throat> secret, in other words? Is that what you meant? Or like... I'm just saying that modeling is less and less of a trade secret. I There's see. more the modeling. So that... The modeling is out there in terms of how most people are using basic frames of, of, of basic kinds of models, and you can actually track the model use. It's which model they apply and how they apply it, what data was used to that, and then what algorithmic decision frameworks were put in place to be able to kind of drive the model. Um, and, and Candace is right, that's got to be transparent. The good news is I would argue we're already starting to see outcomes out of this, right? So it's weak AI, but we're already seeing um, people using predictive models to actually inform precision outreach to students to me. And I, and I, you know, I would echo that, and I think that's a, that's that's a real opportunity. And and so a lot of work, you know, to this point has focused on, um, you know, how do we how do we identify at risk students and intervene before they have challenges, right? Yeah. And I think that's important and that's critical work. But at the same time, there's also an opportunity to raise ceilings. So how do we identify students who aren't living to their potential and could be? And and what more can we do in those kinds of spaces? And I think that's there's a great opportunity there. Uh, but to circle back to something Candace was saying, I think there's a really important uh, part of understanding uh, work in this area is that it is people and machines working together, right? So it's not so, so. When we talk about AI, we we imagine robots, we imagine science fiction, we imagine you know Skynet overthrowing the world, right? We these are the things that we imagine. Uh, but the reality is, is it's not nearly that sexy, right? It's not nearly something that Michael Bay is going to make a film out of. Um, that, that the reality is, is that, that some of the really interesting applications of this are people and, and computers working together to think about, you know, uh, or to explore different problems or ideas. And so, you know, the examples I like to use are thinking about, you know, the, 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 the word suggestions you get on your, when you text message, and it's going to try and fill in the text message, and you always get goofy stuff, right? And so, so you know, that doesn't always work the, the way you want it to, but or thinking about the way that Netflix provides recommendations to you uh, based on, you know, TV and film to watch. And, and so these type, this type of way of thinking about kind of people working together um, with this software changes the dynamic and also opens up new opportunities to think about its teaching and learning application. And I, I want to touch on one example really quick. So one area of research we're, we're engaged in right now is looking at the development of assessments around particular materials. So anybody who's ever had to write a midterm or final and actually generate a set of kind of assessment questions with multiple choice answers and distractors knows the pain that can be and to make sure that you're actually covering all the material and hitting all the great points and these kinds of things. It takes a lot of time and effort. And so we're working on approaches to help, based on a body of work, to extract from that the, uh, the assessment questions, the ideas and the distractors that would come along with those. And one of the interesting 
um, things we've learned from that is that, well, one, the, the development of a distractor comes from an area called ad adversarial learning, which deals with this idea of trying to make something look as real as possible without it actually being real. So if you think that's what a distractor is. Um, but then uh, it turns out that computers are really good at that. They're really good at exploiting... At distracting kind of, people? At distracting, <laughs> exactly. And, and so in our initial kind of research, what we've discovered is these tests are really hard. I mean, because because as they get generated, they, they, they don't show the same kinds of mercy that a human would. And so why in this case, the idea isn't that a an algorithm would read the material and just automatically generate an assessment and give it to the student, but rather it's more a way to inform the instructor about kind of the design of their, of their assessment. Um, and so, so to make sure that these are people that are kind of working together to explore some of these areas. And I actually am curious, Mark, um, you know, right now I feel like we're in a moment where um, some of this, you know, I feel like there's an appetite usually for like the, the exciting futuristic predictions, except for right now we're living in this time um, where there's this disillusionment, I think, uh, widespread disillusionment about some of the tools we already have, like whether it's Facebook and, and all the questions right now about um, fake news and manipulation potentially by, by various sources manipulating these platforms. And, and some of this is back to algorithms in the non-educational setting. I guess, is there... Is there a part where is there something you think AI in education should not be applied to, and and are you, you know, are, do you how much do you worry about a, a dark history coming, or a dark future coming, um, even though you have good intentions and you have these these plans that you're setting forth, um, how how much do you worry about that, and is there an area that you think should not be uh, AI applied uh, in education? Uh, so I think you can go dark quickly on this and think about all the ways these, these tools can be misused. And, and I am deeply concerned. In fact, uh, Charles Thornburg, my co-founder, and I often talk about the fact there are some people who should never, ever, ever, ever use analytics um, or AI just because I think they're going to use it for selfish purposes or they're going to use it in ways to manipulate students. And we've seen that already, you know, that, that horrible kill the bunnies moment, right, where somebody was abusing it for admissions processes and others. Um, that being said, uh, I think if the academic community can come together, I think if the education community can come together around this learning science in a way where we can turn that you know, lens on how we use the best of these data to help these students, I think one, you know, I've said it before, it's the idea that these are, these are the students' data should be used to help the student. Right? And I think there is a moral imperative of knowing. If we, we can do this work and understand the student has the opportunity to be engaged at a higher level or to be helped at a certain time, we have a, an obligation to do something to help that student and try to figure out how to help that student. Um, and above all, I do think there's this ethic of do no harm. How do we, how do we would make sure whatever we do um, is in, about optimizing that student journey? I, I do think the couple things really bother me. I think there is we have a reductionistic view where this is all about at risk. And I think that is very limiting. Uh, I think we should be actually you know, taking our aperture back and thinking about how we optimize education outcomes for all students. We've seen, for example, at USF where they have, um, you know, rat they've, they've suddenly had significant jumps in their retention and success rates, and they've closed their equity gaps, and they've done it without a total, without a focus on demographic categories. They've done it with a focus on data of optimization, which has been kind of great. But I think we have to get rid of that reductionistic, only at risk view, and and I think to flip it to the positive, I think if we do this right, Jeff, I think we're actually. We have the opportunity to enter, and I'm not being hyperbolic about this, I actually think it's true, we have the opportunity to enter kind of a golden age of learning, where we have more tools at our fingertips than ever before to understand what's working and what's not for which student. 
and help those students, and especially, and I can't, I can't reinforce this enough, especially for low-income first-generation students, many of whom do not have the um, human system algorithmic engines that are parents and friends that can help them in ways that the first generation other first-generation students don't have. We can get that same kind of support and even the playing field for a lot of folks who, who've, I think, been left behind in, in a lot of this educational innovation. Got um. I, I would have to think about that one for a little while. I think, I mean, as, as a general rule, you know, I think to think about it in terms of enablement and not enforcement. And I think anytime you're using data to enforce something, um, that's just the wrong way of approaching it. I'd have to, I'd have to consider for a moment what, what pockets of, of teaching and learning that may not be appropriate in. But I think the essential piece of it is that we continue to have it be uh, a technology that enables students, enables faculty, enables advisors, um, and it's about enabling people. And in many ways, this, this, this data is human-driven. Um, and so, it's, it, 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 so those are the key aspects of it. Um, but that's what I'm going to be thinking about now. Uh, so <laughs> next year, it's a date. We're going to talk about all the places where AI shouldn't be used, but I'm sure they're there. Well, I, I guess I guess there, there's not something I don't think we should use. I don't think we should misuse it. Right. I mean, yeah. I think it presents an answer, amazing yeah. opportunity for higher education, which is um, higher education institutions have three core missions that are they're supposed to have a research for creating new knowledge, the research mission, uh, the mission for disseminating <coughs> knowledge, the teaching mission, and then the community service mission. And what this technology provides us the opportunity to do is bring those three missions together much more tightly than they ever have. I mean, for, for most institutions, those, those three missions have gotten really siloed. And so now in many institutions, we have the situation where the researchers, like myself, are doing all of this research into understanding human learning. We publish it in our journals. We throw it over the wall. We hope the <laughs> practitioners pick that up and use that in some way to inform their teaching practice. Um, but often, it, often they don't. And often when they try, it doesn't work because our research didn't cover the complexity of the context in which they were really teaching. So we have this really dysfunctional linear technology transfer model from research into practice. Hmm. And, um, and, and our industry, if you think of higher education as an industry, is one of the few industries that is in a privileged position to not have to put up with that. You know, we, because our researchers, our practitioners, and the people that are supposed to benefit from the research and practice are all co-located, <laughs> both, both temporally, geographically, and most importantly, under mission which is the mission that Mark is talking about. So I want to so uh, break this linear technology transfer model and have researchers and practitioners and learners co-creating the interventions and learning from them so that we're both supporting student success and building our fundamental understanding of human learning simultaneously. Uh, and that's what I think the AI, the technology and the AI models could be used for. But to do that, we have to be willing to not only use the patterns to look at the students, but also use the patterns to look at ourselves. Well, we're um, out of time, but I wanted to, we could obviously go on here, and I really appreciate everyone out in the audience. I'm sorry if there, if there were questions we didn't get to. Um, again, thanks to our guests, Candace and Mark and, and Kyle, for, for joining us. Um, we really appreciated your perspectives. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. We'll have the next EdSurge Live installment in January with a discussion about the future of micro-credentials. 
I want to give a shout out to Brian Alexander, who's been doing a similar online talk show about EdTech every week called Future Trends Forum. You should check that out if you don't know it. And of course, we'll be back next week with the next podcast episode right here. So stay tuned. Until then, thanks for listening.